Welcome back to Beyond the Show, the podcast home of all things Cannabis Conference. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of the Cannabis Group at GIE Media. We're back. It's been a few weeks since we ran an episode of Beyond the Show. We've been working on a limited series called Growing Indoors, all about indoor cultivation, of course, and I recommend you check that out if that is something in your wheelhouse. Beyond the Show is returning just as we're heating up our plans for Cannabis Conference 2022. Registration is open, by the way, and the full three-day calendar of educational sessions is up now on CannabisConference.com. As more speakers get announced for the show, we're going to have them on the podcast. So stay tuned, reserve your seat, make it known that you're coming out to Vegas in August for Cannabis Conference 2022. We look forward to seeing you all out there. Now, on to this week's interview. We've got a great show for you here. Our guest is Jamie Mendola, head of strategy and M&A at Air Wellness. With nearly 20 years of experience as a public and private equity investor and an active investor in the cannabis industry, Jamie brings a tremendous well of experience to his role at Air. Prior to joining the MSO, he was the founder and portfolio manager of Pacific Grove Capital, a hedge fund focused primarily on investments in consumer cannabis, technology, and payments. We talked about the state of M&A in early 2022, as well as some historical context for that, and we discussed the evolving nature of blockbuster acquisition deals. What goes into an M&A transaction, and how has that changed over the years? Please enjoy my conversation about all that and much more with Jamie Mendola. All right, Jamie, thanks so much for joining us on the show this week. Very glad to get a chance to talk with you about air and about some M&A trends and to just dig in some specifics with regard to mergers and acquisitions in the cannabis space. Um, to sort of set the stage, I wanted to just maybe rewind the clock a little bit just to say that it seemed like cannabis M&A was positively roaring for a while there and then it slowed down a little bit and I, I'm sure the pandemic played a bit of a role there and a couple other obvious reasons. But it seems to be heating up again as we get into 2022 and certainly at the end, at the end of last year. Um, so with that in mind, could you maybe set the stage with some context about what's driving what seems like an increase in M&A activity across the market from your perspective? Sure. Well, first, thanks. Uh, thanks for ha- having me. I'm happy to, to, to be here. Um, you're, you're right. There has been a lot of consolidation in this industry, and I think you'll continue uh, to see that, uh, particularly in uh, 2020 and uh, for the most part in 2021, I think what you saw was that there was reasonable access to capital as the debt markets opened up and the equity markets were open briefly uh, post the elections in, uh, in, in early 2021. And that provided a bit of a war chest of capital for let's say the, the, the 10 largest operators um, who for the most part were still in the process of filling out uh, their footprints. And so uh, what you saw was a lot of the major uh, MSOs uh, buying uh, single state operators to either enter new states or to provide uh, greater depth in the states that they were already located in. Um, And uh, so you saw that continue, like I said, through most of uh, 2020 and and 21. Um, I think you'll, you know, I think we see the opportunity for future consolidation in in, in, in this sector as we look at other industries, whether that's cable, telecom, you know, internet, parts of CBG, 
a lot of these industries start to consolidate around five or six players. And I think you'll certainly see a few more in this industry uh, because of some of the licensing constraints at the state level. But I do think you'll start to migrate to you know, five to 10 large uh, MSOs and then a handful of California or other uh, boutique operators um, that may have a, a slightly different strategy. Um, the, the, the piece that I think becomes a little bit more difficult in the short term uh, for the continuance of the M&A cycle like we've seen over the last 18 to 24 months is that we've all seen equity uh, market prices uh, you know, reduce materially uh, for the publicly traded companies where even the best of them are probably down 50 to 60% uh, from the highs. And so the real question is whether there's enough valuation arbitrage between the public companies and the private companies who inherently think that the values of their companies are pretty sticky and maybe don't fluctuate or don't exhibit as much volatility. So uh, from the air perspective, you know, we've always been very disciplined. And uh, quite frankly, right now where equity has taken a big hit like everyone else's and where we think our equity is uh, has a lot of compelling value, I think our hurdle uh, for M&A is, is going to be pretty high. We're still looking at a bunch of things. We still have a few states that we certainly want to enter. Um, but obviously, the math and the accretion uh, needs to line up. And we're really focused on bringing additional uh, you know, talent uh, into the organization through these acquisitions so that we're adding capabilities and not just licenses. Certainly. And yeah, there are a couple of threads there, particularly with regard to AIR specifically that I'm eager to pull at and we can get into some more specifics uh, with the company. But I wanted to just flag that word valuation, which obviously is super important to this conversation. Um, could you maybe in, in a sort of a, I guess, a broad sense or a general sense, maybe elaborate on valuation and, and how that has maybe evolved over the past few years with regard to cannabis companies, how, how valuation calculations might have changed if they have? Sure. Yeah, I think there has been a, a quite a big change uh, over the last, certainly over the last three or four years, where I think early on, um, there were a lot of deals being done on revenue multiples or on kind of fixed price per licensed uh, asset uh, type, of, type of valuations. And very quickly, as this industry has matured, as the operators and the investors and the capital providers have all become a little bit more disciplined, I think those license values or the asset values move much closer to an EBITDA or kind of a cash flow uh, type metric, because we all realize that unless there's profits and cash flows, these businesses aren't sustainable and there's not enough of, uh, there's not the depth in the capital markets to continue to fund money losing companies. And we certainly saw some casualties for, for some of those early movers that may, may have built up pretty good footprints, um, but were losing money or didn't have the capital to build out, a la, you know, Ianthus, MedMen uh, to a certain degree, acreage, et cetera. Um, so I, th I think the valuations have moved much more to either EBITDA of in-place assets, or if it's something that needs to be built out, um, yeah, maybe a, 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 a guess on where that EBITDA may be once, let's say, a cultivation asset gets built out or is expanded, and then maybe a little bit of a discount uh, for some of the execution risk of the uncertainty over what the earnings power of that business is. And I think for, for the most part for private companies, I think a lot of these transactions, while we certainly don't have transparency in terms of all the metrics of all the private companies that have gotten sold over the years, 
I generally think most of these deals have gotten done somewhere in the ballpark of four to six times EBITDA, some perhaps a little bit more, some perhaps a little bit less. And for a time where the MSOs were generally trading at eight to 12 times EBITDA, that was something that worked for both sides. The private companies uh, were getting a decent valuation and in many cases de-risking their net worth by uh, rolling into a larger, more diversified MSO. Uh, and the MSOs were getting an accretive transaction. And like I said, either entrance into a new market or further depth in the state where they might be able to drive uh, some additional synergies. What's happened today is that because these multiples are all way down in the public markets, there's not quite as much cushion on that accretion math. And so quite frankly, in the last three or four months, you actually haven't seen quite as many uh, public to private M&A transactions. There have been a a few here and there. Um, I think partially because the private companies haven't really caved on valuations. And so if they're sitting there at six times and the public companies are at six or seven times, that's probably not an environment that's going to create a tremendous amount of deal flow until the public companies either re-rate or the private companies are willing to um, you know, accept a slightly lower valuation. Yeah, certainly an interesting source of tension there as we, as we move forward. Um, maybe homing in a bit on, on air, uh, particularly on, on the buy side here, you mentioned a few motivations for M&A deals, just generally speaking, of course, moving into new states, providing some depth, uh, adding some, some specific team members and personnel. Um, but again, in, in a general sense, what makes an attractive acquisition target from you and your team's perspective? And I know that's kind of a broad question and certainly I'm sure it varies, but are there high level traits that you are seeking out as, as, the, as the team grows? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess as, as you know, Air was certainly one of the second movers um, in the industry. And so we had the opportunity um, to kind of watch and evaluate and look at the case studies of, of the companies that have come uh, you know, before us. And I would say there's a couple of things that we look for um, in, in our process. You know, one, uh, we love opportunities where we can bring additional talent and capabilities into the company, um, because I think we all recognize that this is one of the fastest growing uh, industries. And there's a lot of new folks that are coming into the cannabis sector, uh, but the scarcity of talent, I think primarily is at the cultivation and extraction you know, level and people that have a handful of years plus of experience and some of the more uh, kind of technical tasks. And then folks that are really tied in to their local markets. Um, so if you look at you know, states like Arizona or Michigan or even California, where we and most of the MSOs don't really live, um, you know, the opportunity to bring in folks that understand the local real estate brokers that have relationships with the small independent dispensaries that know the local or state level politicians, those are very valuable because it's very difficult to manage um, you know, this business from a central corporate level um, and, and to be able to manage um, locally as well as some of those original entrepreneurs have been able to do um, where they're putting all their you know, blood, sweat and tears um, into that at a, at a much more granular level. So, that, so that's one. Um, two is we do have a high-level framework from a strategy perspective of what states that we wanted to build our footprint in. Um, certainly, um, you know, a couple, handful of years ago, there was a mad dash uh, to pick up number of states. And I think there was more of a premium on breadth over depth. And so you saw some companies coming out saying we have 15 or 20 states and 
for a short period of time, I think the market, you know, was looking at valuation per state or some version of that metric. And I think what, what folks ultimately realized is that unless you're actually building real depth within these markets, particularly in a world where you can't cross state lines with, with you know, product or, 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 or people for the most part, um, you ultimately have to build a large business in each of these states uh, to generate a return on capital and have the margins um, that, that we're looking to earn. And so we typically are looking for states where we can build into a $50 million plus retail business or $50 million uh, plus revenue business within a couple of years time. Doesn't mean that the first acquisition needs to get all the way there, but we need to have line of, line of sight on either applications or further acquisition targets that are gonna build us to that scale. And ultimately most of our mature markets are generating uh, north of $100 million of revenue. And I think that's where you can ultimately get the 30% EBITDA margins um, that most of the folks are, are targeting uh, in, in the industry. Um, the last piece, um, and this is probably a slightly newer part of our strategy over the last year, is we are spending a, a lot more time looking at ways where we can upgrade um, brands um, or genetics or increase um, our wholesale business. And so we made our first uh, acquisition of a brand through uh, Levia, uh, which is a low-dose THC beverage uh, that has uh, 60 plus percent market share in Massachusetts. And we love opportunities where we can pick up a brand that is really strong in a certain category or a certain market. And we think has the brand equity to roll out across our footprint, where we can effectively buy the business at a fair price to a slight premium of where, what they are today. But if we're successful in rolling that out across our network, um, it's a, it's a, it'll be a very uh, attractive acquisition and very attractive financial metrics within a couple of years. And so as these markets all mature and the consumers get more educated, I think all of us will be launching and, and have our own brand portfolios. But we're looking at you know, whether there's capabilities outside the firm, whether that's through licensing agreements, whether that's through acquisitions or other form of partnership. Uh, where we can really drive improved performance in our retail, uh, but also uh, provide uh, a stronger, uh, you know, briefcase uh, for our wholesale teams. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, particularly the the Levia acquisition there. Um, one thing I was going to do was set a few of these deals alongside each other, um, some recent air deals, I mean, and the Levia buy was one that I wanted to get into, along with um, another recent acquisition of PA Natural Medicine in Pennsylvania, of course, that was closed last fall. And I just wanted to put those next to each other because they seem to, to get into two of the silos that you just mentioned there. One being, of course, um, you know, an operating you know, licensed business in, in, a, in a state market that you're gaining some depth on, one being a brand. So I guess maybe my question here would be um, mechanically or, well, yeah, mechanically, how do those deals differ? Are there things that go into a brand acquisition that might not be part of a, an op, you know, a licensed business acquisition and, and ways that you need to look at these transactions a little differently? Sure. Um, so I think the biggest piece is that for Levia, um, we really like the founders and they are going to play a very material role um, in helping us expand through uh, product uh, development and entering new categories or new SKUs, as well as working with our team um, you know, to be able to move uh, Levia into other markets, uh, whether that's through um, our own 
construction and supply chain or whether that's working with co-packers and independent third parties. Um, and so we love the product. Uh, we really like the category. We're very bullish on cannabis beverages and having that be a real alcohol alternative in a much healthier um, you know, way. It's a product that has no sugar, no calories. Um, and we really think resonates with some of the non-hardcore cannabis users. Um, we, we've had you know, some statistics that show uh, a third to half of the folks that consume Levia are not necessarily super active users of some of the other cannabis products. And so we're bringing people into the cannabis category in a safe and comfortable way. Um, you know, most of the adults, you know, in the United States are pretty comfortable, you know, drinking alcohol in social you know, situations. And we all know that that is not a healthy way, um, you know, to you know, consume a social lubricant. It's not good for your body. There's a lot of negative externalities uh, from both health and behavior. And we think the cannabis beverage opportunity can really be disruptive. And so we found a company that had a great product, a great team, and a dominant business um, in Massachusetts, where we have a lot of infrastructure and distribution. And we felt very strongly um, that it had all the tools uh, to be able to roll out across our footprint and beyond. And uh, you know, we bought that business for, for $20 million um, upfront. Uh, they do have some earnouts that help them share uh, and incentivize some of the success if we're able to really scale the business um, you know, regionally and nationally. Um, but you know, they were making a bit of money. But for us, that was more of a product development strategic play to really have one of the dominant brands and beverages and, and take that uh, you know, nationally, as opposed to trying to develop and create something which takes you know, time and money and isn't that easy to do. Uh, so we felt like that was really a sweet spot of taking a small brand that had done a really good job and, and turning that into something we think can be much, much bigger. Um, PA Naturals, um, you know, they had uh, three dispensaries uh, in central Pennsylvania, very good locations. Uh, we currently have uh, two grow processing licenses that are operational, and we had six dispensaries of which uh, five were open. And so really that is clearly a market, as we discussed earlier, where we wanted to build more depth. Um, you know, Pennsylvania has been a, a, a pretty attractive medical market. Um, you know, growth is slowing, you know, a bit um, on the medical side, but we have no doubt that at some point in the next two, three, probably worst case four years, Pennsylvania is going to make the journey from medical to adult use. And so in our minds, you know, these were very productive dispensaries. They were run well. We had the opportunity to vertically integrate it integrate them by bringing some of our uh, you know, products into those dispensaries and improve margins. But more importantly, we were able to buy them at, I would say, a fair multiple on today's medical uh, revenues and EBITDA. But when those uh, dispensaries and when the market flips to adult use, we feel pretty confident that there's going to be a material lift. And particularly given that a couple of those locations are in uh, large you know, college towns without a ton of competition, um, we think uh, that they will see significant increases in sales and EBITDA and the multiples that effectively we paid for those acquisitions will look, look much, much lower um, two or three years out as that market ultimately transitions. So we like to be vertical. We like to have big retail uh, you know, footprints. And that was one of the premier assets um, in the state that we were able to identify. Awesome. Yeah, certainly a market that is super interesting to watch uh, for, for a lot of reasons, politically and, and certainly in the market. Um, very exciting to, to hear all that. 
Um, you know, with these, with the, with, the, with the last two questions here, I wanted to get to, I wanted to zoom out just a little bit. Um, you know, you've of course spent a number of years now in cannabis and, and, uh, and time certainly flies in this industry, but I wanted to get a sense from you of, you know, from the M&A perspective and these transactions that we're talking about and literally the terms of these transactions, do they differ significantly from other industries or other, uh, other capital markets? Or are you seeing a level of sophistication in cannabis that's, that's mirroring other industries at this point? Well, I would say the, the transactions aren't necessary from an M&A perspective dramatically different than if it were, um, you know, in, in another industry at this point, I think the level of sophistication amongst, um, the, the lawyers and the M and a, you know, folks at the larger companies and, and to a certain extent that the bankers, when they're used, you know, certainly is certainly catching up. I, I would say one of the biggest things is that, um, there's probably less cash as a portion of consideration than there might be on average in other industries. Because we know that for even the largest companies, none of us have unlimited access, you know, to cash and capital in a way that we probably all should if we didn't have these artificial uh, restrictions, um, you know, on banking and and, and trading, uh, you know, outside the major U.S. exchanges. And so um, I think what that the impact is that for a private company, if you're talking about merging or being bought by a larger player. You're probably going to get some combination of cash, maybe some seller notes and stock. And picking your partner wisely is probably as or more important than the notional purchase price of the transaction. Because if you're going to do a $100 million deal, and let's say $20 million is cash and $80 million is stock, well, the, your outcome is going to be far more impacted by the performance of the stock and of the company that you chose than whether someone paid you $100 million versus 90. And so uh, there's obviously been some horror stories out there, you know, of private companies that sold to one of those, you know, early players that then ended up on the brink of distress, you know, within 12 or 18 months. Um, and I think there's uh, much more awareness of the private companies of doing your diligence and homework and making sure that you feel like, you know, there's good senior leadership, they're being good allocators of capital, there's reasonable corporate governance, and you're getting in bed with the right folks. And, um, you know, I, I think the whole cannabis market at the, at the publicly traded level for the larger guys are, are, are probably undervalued across the board. Uh, but there's those that are, you know, more fully valued than others or folks that have, um, you know, a different strategy, people's balance sheets are in, are in different condition. And so I would say that's probably the biggest thing is in a world where there's not amazing stock liquidity um, and there's not as much cash. It's really uh, being in bed with the, the folks that acquired your business for probably, you know, two to three years before ultimately you're able to fully liquidate um, your position. Certainly. Yeah. And, and not for nothing, I, I noticed just in talking about Levia and PA Naturals earlier, at least from the buy side, that the first thing you mentioned in both those deals was the people and the teams uh, that were were being worked with there. So uh, it's I think it's a really good point to highlight. Um, and whether it's them, you know, those teams or, or Air, again, a lot of this really is new um, in the grand scheme of things, the whole industry. I mean, so I just wanted to end with uh, pointing to a recent interview that you did. I think this was back in December, and you mentioned 
that you had been wanting to be part of building something in an industry that wasn't defined yet. And, you know, at the time in that interview, you were talking about sort of what drew you into cannabis uh, a few years back. So now that we're here in 2022, I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, what keeps you excited about the work now that you are in it? Sure. Honestly, I think for, for me, the thing that is most exciting is that as people get comfortable using uh, cannabis products in their own journey, um, the, the improvement to the quality of life as they displace, you know, whether it's uh, opioids or pain, uh, you know, pills, whether it's Ambien or Tylenol PM or sleeping pills, whether it's alcohol replacement, we get lots of positive feedback and letters and, you know, this type of stuff really helped me out. It saved my life. It helped my, you know, back pain. I can now do X, Y, and Z again. And those are the stories that I think really keep all of us going uh, because there's so much confusing noise out there. We were in this war on drugs. There's still this perception that all drugs are bad. And I got into this industry in many cases uh, because of uh, some health issues with folks in my family um, that were able to use cannabis to improve um, kind of end of life uh, conditions that they dealt with. And even in my own social circle, there's still a certain level of reluctance or lack of information on uh, the social acceptability and the ways that cannabis can really help a wellness oriented lifestyle. This isn't about getting high. This is, we're not selling a lot of, you know, high potency stuff to 23 year olds. The average age of a lot of our consumers are well into the forties, fifties and beyond. Um, And that tends to be the time where people are struggling with stress, sleep, and pain, which are probably the three biggest conditions that are, that, that folks are using cannabis for. And so it's, it's really that journey of bringing this plant-based medicine uh, to the masses in a, in an educated and responsible way. And from a more commercial perspective, we sit there and we look at our business. We think there's an opportunity to double or triple the size of our business through some combination of organic and uh, organic growth and M&A. And the valuations across the sector um, are very, very low relative uh, to what the growth pro- profiles would suggest. I've been a longtime you know, investor in the consumer and technology industries. And I think if you saw the financial profiles of these businesses in terms of revenue growth and margins and return on capital, and if this were in a consumer growth industry, you'd see these stocks trading at 20 or 30 times EBITDA, not six to 10 times. Uh, so we think there's a huge opportunity over the next couple of years as we get through some form of uh, safe banking and ultimately, uh, you know, descheduling or federal legalization combined with exchange, uh, you know, U.S. exchange listings, that there's going to be a tremendous amount of institutional capital that flows into this space. And I think there will be uh, many companies that are worth far more than a billion or $2 billion. I think the cumulative market cap of the top 10 MSOs is something like 25 billion, maybe a, maybe a bit bigger. I, I think you'll see $25 billion market cap companies individually uh, amongst uh, you know some of those top ten, you know, a couple years out. So I think there's a huge opportunity for value creation, and I think really helping to build the company, helping to scale, helping to recruit in talent. Um, it's very energizing and very rewarding. It's a lot of hard work. Um, you know, there's lots of fires that we have to put out along the way, uh, but we've had a, a, a great group of senior folks. We we really haven't had any turnover 
on the on the senior team of the folks that have really been there since the beginning. And so we uh, you know, really have a strong culture of being in this together and really building something great over the next five years. And, and, and that uh, keeps me very excited. I'd love to hear it. Definitely an exciting narrative. And it's super fun to watch uh, from our perspective as, as the industry evolves and certainly as companies like yours continue to grow. So Jamie, just want to say, you know, thanks so much for the time this week. It was great getting a chance to talk to you about M&A and, uh, and a bit more. All right. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And that's a wrap on another episode of Beyond the Show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jamie Mandola from Air Wellness. I know I did. It's always super fun to talk about the M&A market in cannabis as it heats up and then maybe calms down for a little bit and then heats up again as we've seen. It's certainly, uh, it's never just a static story. Um, and M&A, of course, is, is one of those sort of broad brushstroke topics that we'll be getting into at Cannabis Conference 2022. It's one of those mainstay topics that we get into each year. Um, and of course, there's a whole bunch of other financial topics as well. But M&A seems to be an easy entry point into fairly complicated, action-oriented conversations. Like I said, the whole schedule is up at CannabisConference.com. This is a three-day event. It's August 23rd to the 25th. We'll be at the Paris right on the Strip in Las Vegas. You can register for the show at CannabisConference.com. You can peruse the schedule, peruse the exhibitors and sponsors, learn more about some of the logistics behind Cannabis Conference. Uh, We're going to be eager to see you all out there. There's a lot going on. We have a lot more to announce. You know, it's April 1st when this episode's going live, and we've got a lot uh, ahead of us that we're very eager to share with all of you. I'll be sure to announce news along the way here on Beyond the Show. Of course, we'll be announcing it via our Cannabis Conference newsletter. Go ahead and sign up for that at CannabisConference.com, and we will continue releasing content via Cannabis Business Times, of course. So a lot to get into. It's April 1st. Beyond the Show is back, everybody. We're going to be excited to share interviews with you each Friday leading up to the show and, of course, beyond the show.